When I was little, I think it was probably 15 or 16 years old. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I just remember this event, and you guys have this in your life too, where something just sticks out to you. You just remember. And I remember we were doing this youth event. My mom and dad were involved in this youth ministry, and it was called the Hubbub. And the Hubbub was a Friday night event of just crazy games. And uh, we were going to do this big event. It's a citywide thing. Several hundred kids would show up. And I just remember leading up to that event that I wanted to fit in. Anybody ever want to fit in? I wanted to fit in. And this was, again, it was mid-80s. And Nike was becoming the rave. And there was a new Nike shoe out. It wasn't the Jordan or anything like that because this was the 80s, early 80s. So he wasn't there yet. But you have this, I wanted this Nike shoe. I wanted it real bad because all my friends had a Nike shoe, and they all had it, and I felt in order for me to fit in, I needed to have that Nike shoe. Anyone, anyone go to Starbucks because you want the cup? <laughs> okay, and so I wanted to fit in, and so I remember talking to my mom and dad. My mom is here today. She might not remember this because most of the bad things in our home happened because of my brothers and sister, but this was me. Anyway, it's <laughs> rare that I would ever do anything wrong, amen? <laughs> she didn't, didn't yeah. <laughs> I wanted that shoe. And so I said, Mom, Dad, I, 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 wanna, I want this. My shoes are getting bad. I need a new pair of shoes. Of course, they looked at my shoes, and they were the New Balance shoes, and they were not bad. They were good. They were relatively new. But I wanted a new pair of Nike shoes. So I figured, how am I going to get my new pair of Nike shoes? Because I can go to the Hubbub, and I can fit in with all of our friends. And so my dad, being the contractor that he was, he would take me to job sites. And so I just made sure that next week at work, I wore those shoes. And I made sure that week at work that I wore them when we painted and I made sure that week at work that I made sure my shoes got as much paint, if not more, than the wall did. And when we did any mud type work, I made sure that my shoes were ruined by Friday. I remember going and saying, I need a pair of shoes for Friday night. My mom and dad were not dumb, and neither are you. <laughs> they knew, and guess what pair of shoes I wore that night to the hubbub? A pair of New Balance all painted and chalked up pair of shoes. I did not fit in. In fact, it even made it worse because now I had these really messed up pair of shoes. But you've done something in your life to try to fit in. Whether it's buying that extra that shirt that has that logo on it, whether it's wearing the hat that everybody else is wearing. Kids, you'll wear that hat sideways or backwards to fit in. You'll do something. And adults, we're just better at hiding it. We want to fit in. And I think in the church of Pergam, they wanted to fit in. And for a church that's leaving paganism, that's leaving idol worship, that's leaving, leaving the, the worship of Caesar, they're leaving it, they're turning away, that pull to fit in is strong. All of their friends are still worshiping that idol. All of their friends are still going to those feasts, and now they're not. So if you have your Bibles, I want to take you to the church of Pergam. I want to show you, again, what we can learn from these churches. And you can visit these churches every day. You can read Revelation 2 through 3, and we're going through this, and we're showing what these churches struggled with. 72% of them struggled with something that was very serious. The other 28 suffered persecution. My reason of bringing that up is there is no perfect church that doesn't have a problem. Persecution. Yeah, I'm going to go to the church with persecution. <laughs> well, I'm going to find the perfect church. It's never existed. In the history of man, it's never existed. These churches struggled. And what the Lord is doing is he's giving them a great assessment. He is showing up in their midst, 
explaining to them what's going on, and it follows a simple pattern. They do this in all the churches. I want to remind you of it, if you'll put that slide up there for me. It, the, there's a, a pattern or structure of this assessment. First of all, you get the recipient. He'll say to the angel of. That's the messenger, the preacher of that congregation. And I encouraged you that Sunday when I mentioned that word for angel could be messenger, it could be pastor. And so you can just call me Angel Bob, Messenger Bob, but no one has done that yet. So I guess that one didn't stick. I'm just kidding. Uh, then the next one is the characteristic of Christ. Each one of them will give you a characteristic of who Jesus is that's relative or related directly to that congregation. The next aspect of it is he'll give them a praise. You're doing this really well. This is really good. The next one is that he'll not only give them a praise, he'll give them some criticism. This is what you're not doing well. Five of the seven churches will receive some kind of a criticism. Only two of them will not, okay? And so this is the pattern. The next one he gives them is a call, a call to repentance. You need to change a certain behavior within your congregation. Because if you don't, you get the next part, and that's a warning. There's a consequence to rebellion. There's a consequence to refusing to follow the Lord's plan. And then lastly, you get a reward. He'll say to the, to the one who has... Listen to what the Spirit says. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He gives them a blessing. This is great parenting advice if you were to modify this for your home. It's great. You talk to your kids. You tell the characteristics of mom and dad. You praise those who are, when they're doing really well. It's important to praise children and how they're behaving and encourage them. Because if all that it is is criticism, they won't hear it after a while. You need to praise them in what they're doing and then graciously give them whatever that criticism is. And then you threaten them with their lives if they don't do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but there's, the, there's a pattern. That, and you watch the Lord and how he encourages these churches. It's a gracious way of trying to bring out his will inside of their lives. And so look at this church in Pergam. Uh, it's found for you in Revelation chapter 2. And we can learn from them just like we learned from the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a strong doctrinal church. I like to refer to these churches as the... the um, Ephesus Bible Church, that's what this was. Not a Baptist church, not an assembly of God, it was a Bible church, amen? Okay, so it's Ephesus Bible Church, but they were really good at knowing stuff. They could defend the faith better than anybody, but they had forgotten to love God. And they could defend the faith, but they didn't love God, it wasn't his, their highest priority. They wanted to make sure they were defending the faith. And they, if you fail to love God, you'll fail to love people. And so the admonition there is to love, love, love. You can be right and sweet at the same time, Proverbs 3, 3. Do not let truth and kindness depart from you. So be right, but be sweet about it. Be kind. Love God as you're doing that. And then you get the church in Smyrna. We talked about them last week. And this was the church where God knew their, their tribulation. He knew of their poverty. He knew of the blasphemy that was spoken against them. And he knew the persecution that was coming. And he said, do not be afraid be faithful. And what was struggle was a struggle about that church is God didn't deliver them from that persecution. They went through it. Many of them suffered and died. We have this idea in our culture, a lot of pastors will preach this, this is called the health and wealth gospel, and it's wrong. Sometimes you will be persecuted for your faith. You need to have that within your ecclesiology, within your framework of theology, that God sometimes allows that to happen and that we need to be prepared for it, not be alarmed by it, and not be deceived by those who are saying, well, then you must not have accepted Jesus if this is happening. <laughs> That's not true. Sometimes, sometimes persecution happens. And we need, as a body of believers, to be ready for that, to know that that's part of the equation and that sometimes God allows that to take place. We learned that from Ephesus. We learned that from Smyrna. Today, if you have your Bibles, look at this church in Pergam. 
And this city is about 35 miles north of uh, Smyrna, just up the Aegean coast. And this is what the Lord says to them. To the angel of the church in Pergam write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And that should ring a bell if you're familiar with your Bible. You remember when it says in Hebrews chapter 4.12, that same idea of the two-edged sword comes up. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Think about a sword, if you think of Braveheart, you think of if you have a sharp edge just on one edge, and this is a flat or dull edge, it only cuts one way. So when you swing the sword, then you have to turn the sword and swing it back that way. But if you have a sword that's beveled on both sides, that's sharp on both sides, well, it cuts no matter which way you swing it. So it's much more efficient. I know it sounds kind of graphic, but it's much more efficient, and it's able to cut both ways. It also cuts going in and cuts going out on both sides. It's a more efficient, sharp sword. Some Roman soldiers were able to carry those, but not, not many of them. Them. Most of them had a, a one-edged sword. And so it's a unique tool used in combat. But look what the Spirit does for us in Hebrews. And he applies that known weapon. And he applies it to the Word of God, even penetrating as far as the vision of the soul and spirit. And so the Word of God cuts to the heart, not the physical heart, the, the heart of the soul and the spirit. He's able to divide both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so what Jesus is talking to this group here, it's a group of people, and he says, the one with that sharp two-edged sword, the knowledge of God, this is what he's carrying, and that's going to come into play as, he, as this text unfolds. So I think the main idea here is that this power of the word, the power of God's word, is going to penetrate and reveal the motives that are taking place inside the hearts of this church. Notice verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Let's deal with the bookends there. Notice it says in the front end, Satan's throne, and on the back end, where Satan dwells. What kind of a city is this, right? That's a little disturbing. Satan's throne and where Satan dwells is in Pergamum. What does he mean by this? Some have cited that uh, maybe it's because this is where the temple was built to Zeus. Maybe that's why this is there. Maybe this is reference to that temple. Other have cited their desire to excel in their worship of Caesar and all things Roman. And this is a consistent thread throughout all of the churches. They wanted to let Caesar know that they were serious about their passion for Rome and their love for Caesar. It's always good to make friends with the guy who has the largest army. And Caesar has the largest army. So let's make sure that he knows that we love him. That way he doesn't come and kill all of our friends. And so that's one of the passions that all of these cities have. Maybe that's why, because their passion and worship of Caesar was great. But there's another guy in this city. Others have cited the worship of us. I always say it wrong first. Asses Culipius. Okay? Asses Culipius. He was the god of healing. There was a, a hill about a thousand feet tall, and on top of it was a, a, a temple. If you could ascend through the different barriers to get to the top of the temple and avoid all of the snakes and get there, you could be healed. Maybe this God would heal you. And so there's this place where you can sneak to, and if you can get up to the top, you could be healed of whatever ailment you have. So this city, I believe, the main idea here, Satan's throne and where Satan dwells, it was really exceptional at idolatry. Satan really doesn't care what you worship as long as it's not God. He really doesn't care. If you want to worship a God of healing, if you want to worship Caesar, if you want to make up your own God named Zeus, that's great. Just don't worship God. That would be fine. 
And so this place where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is, I believe is just a way of referring to this place was deep in the worship of idols. Most cities were. This one is unique in that it has this goddess, uh, this god of healing. And the reason why I say it's unique is because it comes up to this man named Antipas. There's only a few other old first century saints in the Bible that are mentioned that were martyred. You have James, the brother of John. You have Stephen. And then you get this man named Antipas who was killed. Notice the affectionate way of referring to him. Do you see how the, how the Lord says to him, my, who, um, it says, and you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas. And then notice, my witness, my faithful one. The presence of Christ for those who are being persecuted and those who are martyred is great. Remember when Stephen was martyred, he was able to look up into the heavens and see Christ. He's present there. And when uh, Paul or Saul is confronted on the road to Damascus, Jesus refers to the killing of Stephen and refers to the persecution of the church and says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes it very, very personally when his beloved are persecuted and martyred. He's very, very present in that. And so here he says, my witness, my faithful one. In the case of church history, we know how Antipas was killed and it's a little too graphic to share. This man laid down his life because he would not deny Christ. And my guess is, is you have this goddess, this god of Asclepius, who's a god of healing. And the tradition says that Antipas was a physician and a dentist. And so if you can imagine, Antipas is having great success in his medical practice. And they want him to give credit to the god of healing. And he will only give credit to the god of the heavens. He will not bend the knee. And so he is faithful to the very end. This is the place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. And so this is the context of what's taking place. Pergamum is also known for a couple of other things I think is important. One of them is, is they are the place that produces the most parchment. This is important. I'll get to you in just a minute. But parchment is a, is a skin that has been stretched, and they're able to ride on it. Remember what Moses came down from the mountain with? What, did he, what, was it, what were the commandments written on? Tablets of? That's heavy. How do you carry that around, right? Well, they would eventually come up with papyrus, and then they'd come up with parchment. These are skins that could be rolled together. Pergamum was known for this development. They weren't the founders of parchment. Uh, probably a lot of people came up with the idea, but they were producers of it. In fact, they had over 200,000 scrolls. 200,000 scrolls. Now, the, the Library of Congress has 2.9 million volumes, so 200,000 is pretty small. But this is the ancient world. 200,000 scrolls is a lot. And so they wanted to be known for something, so they have this wonderful temple, they have a worship of Zeus, they worship Rome, they build a lot of parchment, they have 200,000 scrolls, and they're trying to compete with a city called Alexandria, which is on the coastline of Africa, by the Mediterranean Sea. And it has a port, and it has lots of academic institutions. And so it's a very heady community, even to this day, it's got lots of libraries. And so Pergamum wants to compete with them, so they have scrolls, they have libraries, and they have universities. They have all of these things. A lot of intellectual things going on in Pergam. And so the Lord is coming at them and says, the one who has the sharp, a sharp two-edged sword, the word of my mouth, I'm going to come into this academic setting, this place that thinks they know stuff, that's on the cutting edge of, of intellectual uh, beliefs and understandings of the world around them. And he is going to confront them on a few things. 
I think it's significant that it's a, li- a, a city that has a huge library, that has several universities, and the Lord is going to come in and deal with them in a very special way, he says in verse 14. I have a few things against you, and all these great things, but I have a couple things I want to talk to you about. You have to know your history on this, he says. You have some who are holding the, teaches, the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, you look at them, what? (laughs) What is that? Okay, let's talk about this character, Balaam. He's in the Old Testament. You have to know your Old Testament history. Old Testament, you have the, the nation of Israel coming out of the uh, captivity in Egypt, and they're facing an army of um, the Midians, the Midianites, king of Moab. So here you have, his name is Balak, he comes out, and he wants to go to war with Israel. And so he's looking for anybody and anybody who can inspire his troops. They would find someone who can say, hey, the nation of Israel is going to be defeated, and he wants to give them a pep rally. And so the best way to do that is to find a prophet who's going to come and speak ill against the nation of Israel. And so he Look, who can I find? Well, he finds a free agent, and that free agent is named Balaam. Balaam isn't even a Hebrew. He doesn't. He works for anybody. He's just in it for the money, according to Peter and according to Jude. He just he'll say anything he needs to say as long as you pay him. And so Balak hears about this guy and says, I, "Let's go get him and have him prophesy against Israel." Three different tries. Balaam can't do it. He can't prophesy against the nation of Israel. He won't. God won't let him. God even speaks to this creep. I mean, this is a bad guy. God even talks to him, which makes me wonder, God, you'll talk to anybody. Yes, even to us. He'll talk to Balaam, and, and this is the, God will even talk through a donkey. This is the donkey story. Remember the donkey story? If you don't, yes, only donkeys can speak. And the donkey turned and talked to Balaam. It's a crazy story. God used Balaam in a unique way. But what Balaam did a little bit later on in the history, in the story was, he went to Balak and said, if you really want to mess up, the nation of Israel, you can't win with a head-to-head conflict. You can't. The best way to do it is to sneak around the back and teach them to compromise their truth. Have them just twist the truths of the Old Testament law just a little bit. If you'll get them to do that just a little bit, they'll do a little bit more and they'll do a little bit more. And next thing you know, God will judge them and God will wipe them out. That's how you get rid of the nation of Israel. Just give them a little bit of bad doctrine. Just give them a little bit of falsehood. Just convince them to compromise along the edges of what is truth. And if you'll do that, Balak, you'll win. And you know what happened? They won. It's a terrible story in the nation of Israel's history where thousands suffered and died because they compromised the truths of Scripture. All Balaam did was say, let's put these little stumbling blocks in front of them. And sure enough, it worked. And so if you go to this church in Pergam, you can kind of see what might be taking place. There are some inside of this church who are holding false doctrine, who are holding things that are not true to Scripture, who've compromised along the edges because they wanted to fit in. They didn't want to come out and say outright, yeah, all those idols are wrong or all those uh, feasts are wrong and worshiping those idols are bad, you shouldn't do that. They just kind of allowed a little bit in. And when you let a little bit in, the next thing you know, you're going to let a bunch in. The next thing you know, you're going to collapse. And what Jesus says to this church with a, a, a sharper than a two-edged sword way of communicating, he says, you're allowing false doctrine to, to come inside of your church, and it's going to ruin you. 
you must hold firm to truth. And so they're kind of the opposite of Ephesus. Whereas Ephesus was so strong on the truth, they forgot to love. It seems like Pergam is saying, we just want to love everybody. We'll just take a little bit of that bad stuff. We know it's wrong. It's not even like, uh, these are essential beliefs. We'll just kind of compromise on that. So we'll take a little bit of those idols. We'll take a little bit of that worship. That'll be fine. No big deal. And that's what they allow to come in. And that is obviously deeply offensive to God. If you've been reading through the Bible, you're probably getting somewhere around Jeremiah. I go through a chronological read, and we're in that middle of Jeremiah. Just finished some of the Old Testament prophets. It's hard to read, so if you struggle with that, so do I. But what strikes me about the king section of all that is that the kings would allow Asheroth poles inside the temple of God. They would allow idols into the Holy of Holies that Solomon built. And they didn't put it all out. They said, yeah, we'll just take a little bit of those idols from these other kings, the God of Molech. We'll bring them in here. We'll just put that right next to the ark, the Holy of Holies. And they allowed it in. And that's what I believe is happening in Pergam, is they're allowing this corrupt evil come inside of their church. And it's beginning to take hold. And so the Lord confronts him on this because this is going to grow like a terrible, awful cancer. And he says, you have some who are holding on to this. Therefore, verse 16, he says, repent. What else does he need to say, right? Stop it. Stop it. Don't you love it when it's just really simple? Well, Lord, don't you need to give a long explanation of that? Nope. Stop it. Dads, you kind of get this language. I've noticed this difference between moms and dads. Moms like to give explanations. Honey, don't do that because, right? Dads just say, knock it off. Have you noticed this? Stop it. Dads will just short and sweet. No explanation. Quit it. Or else. And that's what he says there. Look at that. Repent. Or else. No explanation. No long discussion. No soft talk. No soft selling it. It is just, poof. Stop it or else I'm going to come quickly. And notice this nice little word there. I will what? Wage war? That's how serious God takes this. Stop it, or I will come and wage war with the sword of my mouth. I will defend the faith. Stop it. It's clear. It's direct. There's no ambiguity to this. Stop holding those doctrines that are so contrary to Scripture. Stop it. I love the clarity. I love the brevity. It's just plain as day. I will come and I will remove that from you. We can look at these churches and you study them, you look at them, you think, man, how do these these knuckleheads get so lost in all of this? Where Where does it come from? How come? How do they get so confused? How does the nation of Israel bring in those Asheroth poles? How do they do add all that together? And, you know, we can get judgmental and kind of point our finger at them, but this can happen to us too. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. And so what it says in Psalm 139, if I can just stop for a minute and apply this to your heart, if you can look at Psalm 139, it ends with this great little line in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. It says this in that psalm. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You know, that's probably a good prayer to pray every now and then. Lord, search me. It's easy to look at those around me in the church inside of Pergamum or Ephesus or Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia, or Thyatira and Sardis. Look at them and say, God, what a bunch of knuckle brains. But the wise person says, Lord, where am I messing up in this? 
And so before we go to the closing, verse 17, think about that for a minute. Maybe you need to pause this morning and say, Lord, search my heart and see if there's any offensive way in me. This is how the Lord takes this very, very seriously. He wants a holy people. He wants you and me to walk with him. And so he says, search me. So apply that to your heart today. Maybe before you leave today, you'll search your heart and see if there's any wicked way. But also in Jeremiah 20 or Jeremiah 9, 23, we also not only search our way, but we need to hold on to what's real. The church in Pergamum was grasping at things that were false, that weren't real. They were, they were fraudulent, they were fake. In fact, this last uh, Friday night, we watched a show called 13 Lives. Have you seen this show? It's really good. It's about uh, the boys on that soccer team in Thailand who got caught in the cave. It's a really fun, it ends well, as history shows, but it shows how they did that. But before he went into this uh, cave that they got trapped in, there was an idol that was put out in front of it. I think it was the goddess of rain, and, and she laid there. You're supposed to stop and bow and acknowledge her before you went into the cave. And it was disturbing to me as we all watched this because that's not real. That's not real. In fact, that's worse than real. It's something that Satan uses to distract from a love of God. It's worse than not real. It's distracting to loving God. And I can't imagine being the church in Pergam having to turn away from those idols that they've followed their whole lives. It's difficult. They had to let go of those so they could hold on to what's real. And so Jeremiah says this, hold on to what's real. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the riches boast or the rich boast of their riches. Let the one who boasts boast about this. This is what we're supposed to hold on to, that they have the understanding to know me, the Lord says, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things, I delight. Hold on to what's real. Let go of the things that aren't. Hold on to what's real. Lord, search me, know my heart. If there's anything in there that's distracting, I want to let go of it so I can hold on to what is real. In my life, I have a terrible habit of trying to get everything into one trip. Anybody do this? If I can do it in one trip, I'm going to. Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get those. I love the handles on the HEV bags because you can wrap them all the way up to your shoulder and you just make one trip. And even if I'm leaving the office, I'll grab a pen, I'll grab my glasses, I'll have my keys and my coffee and my bag. I'm, I'm going to do all this in one trip. And I'm incredibly optimistic until I get to my car and my hands are full and I realize the keys are in my pocket. Now what am I going to do? And, I have, and what's really bad is I drop things because I'm trying to hold on to everything. And have you noticed the magnetic pool next to your car? If you dropped your keys next to your car, do you know where they're going to land? Underneath the car. And that just does terrible things to my attitude and the language that I, I'm trying to put aside and all that. So I drop my keys, they landed under the car, and now I have to get on my hands and knees and scrape under there because I'm trying to hold on to everything. And the reality is you can't. You have to choose what are you going to hold on to. And the admonition for the church of Pergam is hold on to what's real. And what's real is Christ. We can get confused. We try to hold on. I want to be popular. I want to be accepted. I want to be in the in crowd. I want to try to hold on to this. You can't. So stop it. Hold on to what's real. That means you're not going to get invited. That means you're going to be called a denier. That means you're going to be called ignorant. That means you're not going to be called that you don't like science. That's going to be all these things. You're holding on to what's real, and that's Christ. It's hard to do. That's the admonition to Pergam. Let go of those things. Some are holding on to false doctrine. Let go of that. Hold to what's 
real. So search me, O God. Is there any wicked way in me? Hold on to what's real. Then he closes in verse 17. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is to everybody. To the one who overcomes, as we talked about, that's the people who put their faith in Christ. I will, this is really interesting. I'll give him some of the hidden manna. Manna? What's that? That's actually what it means. Manna. We don't know what it is. It's the whatchamacallit of the Old Testament, okay? They don't know what that is. It's angel food from heaven. You remember the story. The food came from heaven, God, or the skies, and they ate it. It's called manna. They ate it for 40 years. It's like having tortillas for 40 years. Sounds pleasant until day three, okay? And so they had manna all of the time. I will give them a white stone. A white stone with the name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who received what is he talking about? Let me ask you this. When was the last event you went to? Say you were going to a Rangers game, a Red Sox game, or you're going to an Astros game. You have somewhere what is called a ticket. First service didn't get the ticket. I had to explain that. They, you got a ticket. What does the ticket get you? Get you in the game, right? You get to show the ticket, you get in. In the ancient world, they didn't have tickets with disclaimers on the back of it that try to explain if anything happens to you while you're here, it's your own fault, okay? They didn't have any of that. So what they had was they had a stone. It's called the tesseron. They had a stone. And so if you were gonna go to that festival, to that God, you would get a stone, and that stone would get you in. And that's how you got in. If you didn't have the stone, you didn't get into the feast. And the feast, all the food, you didn't get any of that food. You got nothing. And so here the Lord says, I'm going to give you real food. You let go of all of that stuff, I'll give you the real food. Food that will last from heaven. I'll feed you. And then I'll give you a ticket. <laughs> I'll give you a ticket, my ticket. And the name written on it, scholars go back and forth, the name that nobody else knows but the recipient, you're going to flip it over and it's going to say Christ. Because he's your access. He's what gets you into that feast. He is the one who gives you that acceptance, that part of the crowd. That's the crowd you want to be in. He's the one that makes the way for that. He says, to the one who overcomes, I will give you a stone, the name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. And the one who receives it will look over and say, that's the name of my Jesus. That's how I got in. I think the church in Pergam is trying to leave the academic circles and all those other things that brought such status to them. And they're going to embrace a, a guy who was killed by the Romans and claimed to have risen on the third day that nobody really knows about. They're going to follow him, which means they're not going to go to our feast. They're going to deny our gods. They're not going to worship all on the hills. They're going to just worship him. Boy, those people are weird. Yes, they are. When you only worship him, you will be weird just like they were. But know this, this is the last thing to close with, is this. Notice that whatever you leave, whatever you give up here will not compare to what you will receive there. It just doesn't compare. We see this world today as this is the end all, be all of everything. It is not. This is not. Whatever you give up here, you will receive there in even bigger numbers. So the one who overcomes will receive these things in the name of Christ Jesus, that acceptance into his presence where you can never be rejected. So stop striving to be accepted by things that won't matter in the end. Hold on to Christ. Good doctrine, following the Lord in all of his ways.